Hello, fellow dog-powered sports enthusiasts. This is Chelsea Murray, and you are listening to Positively Dog-Powered, a podcast that dives deep into the real world of positive reinforcement training and dog-powered sports. Today, I have two special guests and friends on the show, Nick and Joy Weiss with Lucky Fox Racing and Coaching. Nick and Joy are both elite athletes in dog-powered sports and coaches who help their clients reach their goals from sprint racing to triathlons. Nick and Joy compete in dog-powered sports running canicross, bike joring, rig, and sled sprint classes at the elite level, both domestically in the United States and internationally, representing the U.S. at IFSS World Championship and ICF World Championship events. Nick is also a member of the Nonstop Dogwear International Elite Caniacs team. Nick and Joy, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having yeah, us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So you guys have been in sprint racing for a while. I know that you have a variety of dogs that you guys run with, and you certainly do a variety of sports as well. Canicross, bike drawing, sledding. How did you guys initially get involved in this sport? So as a kid, um, I've always had dogs. Um, My parents got me a dog book, and I just absolutely fell in love with Alaskan Malamutes. And I always wanted an Alaskan Malamute, um, never had one. And then after Joy and I got married, um, our two dogs we had, one of them was getting older. Um, He would only play when there was a puppy around. And so we thought, hey, let's get a puppy. And so we ended up getting an Alaskan Malamute puppy and um, very quickly found out that if we didn't find some sort of outlet for his energy, he was going to destroy our entire house. I had been a runner in college, Joy ran in high school and had ran a marathon. And so we just decided, okay, we're going to run with him, burn some of that energy off. And after a couple runs of getting our arms pulled out of socket with the leash by hand, we decided there's got to be a better way. So we just started researching and found cane across and went from there. It's an addictive sport. So once you guys got involved, I imagine that the number of dogs you had and the number of activities you were doing with them increased. Yes. <laughs> exactly. It, it For anyone that doesn't compete in dog power sports, it tends to snowball very quickly. It's quicker <laughs> than you realize even, yes. <laughs> yeah. So how are you guys currently involved? Talk to us about a little how the last year has been and when, what kind of activities you guys have been doing. Well, the last year, um, because of COVID, has been a lot of training by ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we, we compete in cane across, we compete in bike door, we compete in um, the rig class racing. Um, we do a sled race here or there. Um, uh, we have done shorter mid-distance races, mm-hmm. but mostly we do uh, sprint races. So, yeah. you know, this last year with COVID, it has given us a lot of time to train and sort of, um, you know, decide is this the route we want to go with training and with this sport or this sport and kind of reevaluate things and figure out where we're at and where we want to be. And, you know, I would also want to say thank you to all of the organizations um, and groups that put on the virtual races over the last year because uh, it's just been a really cool way to connect with people all over the world who love the same sports we do. And so that's been sort of fun, you know, a little bit different. Uh, and I think that was, you know, it was, it was a fun thing for us to be able to do this last year when we weren't able to actually get out and race. Oh, absolutely. As you guys know, I did my first 
dry land race this year. And I have been competing in Canacross and running Canacross for 10 years now, but majority of it has been virtual. I live in Atlanta, Georgia, and there aren't a lot of opportunities to compete locally. And so when you're first getting started in the competition world, traveling that long of a distance to attend an event when it's your first time and you don't know anybody, it can be really intimidating. And I think that these virtual races have been a fantastic way, especially in the last year, to give people an opportunity to stay motivated and continue to run and meet their training goals. And, and the other thing that I've really enjoyed about them is that, um, you know, when when you go to an actual race, at least for me, I'm worried about the place. I'm not worried about time. And so the virtual races have allowed me to set some time goals that, mm -hmm. well, not set, to, to work on some time goals that I've had set for a while, but I've never really worked towards because it's it's always in a race atmosphere. And so I'm, I'm running to win, not running for a time. And now I'm running for a time. Yeah. I like that a lot, but it almost gives you the opportunity to um, use them in a different way than you use your in-person races. Exactly. Yeah. So were you always competing competitively? I know that you guys ran um, in college and, and were athletic before getting into canacross and bike drawing, but how long were you in the sport before you guys started to be competitive? I, I guess that depends what you classify as competitive. Mm -hmm. You know, Ruger and I ran our first race in 2012, but that was just a local 5K, uh, local friend, dog friendly 5K. You know, our first like real dry land races were in 2014, 2015, and it was really 2016 when we started racing at the level that we're racing at now. You guys have traveled internationally and represented the U.S at the world stage before, most recently for the 2019 IFSS World Dryland Championships. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that qualifying process looked like for you guys? So at that time, for all of North America, there was one automatic qualifying spot in Canacross, uh, men and women combined. So only one for guys and girls mm -hmm. all totaled. Um, I was fortunate enough to earn that spot. Um, everyone else from the U.S. is selected by a committee um, from USFSS, um, which Joy was one of the athletes that was um, selected for that committee. And so basically the season before the world championships, you're pretty much building a resume to submit to that committee. Um, you want to um, get to races, get to races where there's good competition, and then lastly, perform um, whenever you do have the opportunity to race um, the other top people in the country. And can you talk to us a little bit about the dogs that you two both took to Worlds to compete with you? Yeah, so um, I raced with Anarchy. Um, he is a Grayster, which um, for those of you that don't know, that's a breed of dogs that's bred specifically for front mushing. It's basically a mix between a German short hair pointer and a Greyhound. But that was his first year of racing. And um, Actually, the World Championships was only his third race ever, um, but, uh, you know, he, he's just a fun dog to be around. Um, he very much lives up to his name of Anarchy. Um, he is crazy all the time, and uh, we, we joke that if, in fact, we were joking yesterday, if he had a logo, his logo would be an upside-down egg lit on fire. So I took Oso to the World Championships. 
Oso is a rescue dog and he came to us from Heartland Husky Rescue in Oklahoma City. He is a ball of energy to say the least and uh, we were really excited to be able to have found Oso and add him to our pack. Um, so one of the things about, I will say, and I think it's really important for people to remember that whether you are racing with a specific breed of dog that's purebred for a race, a rescue dog, whatever you're racing with, the dog has to come first. They are the top priority and their health is what matters most. So at the 2009 championship, 2019, 19, yes, 2019 <laughs> world championship, um, Oso actually got sick. He tweaked his paw on the first day of racing and he just was not himself those next couple days, honestly, even from the time we landed, he just wasn't himself. He was sick to his stomach. He didn't want to come out of the van. He didn't want to do anything. And it was a really hard decision for me to make to scratch the second day and not compete with him. But it wasn't about what I wanted. It was about what he needed. And I think that's something that people just really need to remember. Our egos can be so big sometimes. And, you know, we work so hard towards something, um, but it wasn't right for me to ask him to do that. And uh, I am so blessed and honored that I got to compete with him there and he's just such a great dog and and I just think about sometimes you know what could have been for him because he was such a high energy dog and really had sort of been deemed unadoptable and I think about you know he's competed with Nick at two world championship events and then got to go to Sweden um, he's and and he loves overseas travel because he gets in the bed you know I mean he's quite the he's quite the spoiled little guy <laughs> that's something that I talk to my clients about a lot whether you're just going into town to get a coffee and bringing your dog along or you're traveling or going to an event whenever we bring the dog with us places they have to be the priority and you have to keep both their physical and their mental needs in check. So if they start getting stressed out about something or they hurt themselves or start not feeling well, we have to be able to make those tough calls and put them first. And a lot of the times that means us not getting to do the fun thing we had planned. I can't even imagine what it must have been like to have to make that call at such a big event like that, where you had spent so much time, money, and efforts, not only preparing for this event, but also getting yourself there. I'm sure that was really tough. Besides Oso hurting his paw, did the dogs handle travel pretty well? How did they fare? Yeah, so we work pretty hard with our dogs in the off season for uh, handling travel. One of the uh, very first lessons we learned um, in racing was that you have to prepare your dogs for travel. You can't just expect them to do it well the first time. And so um, we do most of our traveling to any race we do, whether international or here domestically um, overnight. And so the dogs are used to that routine of, okay, we have a trailer that the dog's traveling. We load up in the trailer, they go to bed and they wake up and we're wherever we need to be in race. And so traveling over to Europe isn't any different. We book the last flight out at night, we load up at night. It's like they're loading up in, into the trailer. Uh, and then when we get to Europe, it's the next morning and we go about our day. 
And how did you both feel about the course? I heard it was a pretty challenging one. So the course was hilly to say the least. Uh, <laughs> it's, I don't think I've ever raced on a hillier course here in North America for it. Um, for going in, I, I had scouted the course. I knew um, they actually had the European Championship at the exact same course in 2018. So there was GoPro um, footage and I studied that and I knew the type of hills that were coming in. And we live in, we, we have some hills around here. I mean, it's not like we're a mountainous region by any means, but we do have some, you know, 10% grade hills and stuff around, uh, around us. And so we actually sought those out and trained a lot on those hills just to prepare uh, for that type of uh, course where you have the constant up and down. And um, we did a lot of our hill training toward the end of runs because uh, the course, one of the steeper hills was basically the last, oh, three eighths of a mile. And it was a pretty constant mm -hmm. uphill for all of that. So yeah, it was a, it was a really nice course. It was well, you know, groomed and it was beautiful but it was definitely challenging when you know what the course is going to look like and you have gopro footage of previous races at that site i imagine it's easy for you to do your visualizations and prepare yourself mentally what do you do when you're going to a big race and you don't know what the course is going to look like so one of my big mottos is that training needs to be more difficult than the races and so if I don't know what a course is going to be like, I train as if it's going to be hilly, tight, twisty, narrow, it, you know, all the worst conditions. That way, whenever we get there and it's not those things, it's easy. Now, I know that while you guys were at that event, Nick, you were part of the U.S. relay team where there is one member doing canicross, one scooter, and one bike drawer. Can you talk to us a little bit about that event, since it's not something that is often run here in the U.S.? For those of you that ever watch the Olympics, it's kind of the equivalent of, you know, the four-by-four four relay that you see at the end of the track portion of the event. And so it's the very last event they put on. Uh, like you said, it's um, cane across scooter, bike door. Um, cane across is a mass start. Once the cane across finishes, you hand your dog off to someone, and then the cane across runner goes and tags the scooter leg. Scooter takes off, runs the course, tags off to the cane across runner again, who runs oh, 50 to 100 meters to go tag to the bike door leg, and then the relay finishes that way. Um, you know, Anyone that asks me, I say that dog-powered sports is organized chaos, and the relay is especially true of that. Mm -hmm. uh, we had um, the cane across runner for Great Britain, uh, Ben Robinson. He actually got taken out by um, a dog went one way around him, and the bike went the other way, and the line just cut his legs out from underneath of him and wiped out the bike door erect, and it was a, yeah, it was kind of a scary to watch at first till everyone popped up and you realized everyone was okay but uh yeah so they run it a lot over in Europe or a lot more than what we do in Europe uh, I've only ever been to one race here in North America that runs the relay Bristol mm -hmm. so uh, that was one area that I actually cost the relay team some time was handing off anarchy to Joy who was handling for me at the finish line all the rest, they hand off their dogs like in a fraction of a second. And because I was so slow compared to everyone else, I actually took us from being fourth whenever I crossed the finish line 
to being, I think it was seventh or eighth before I actually tagged off to the scooter leg, just because, like I said, everyone else was so quick. Basically, they were in and out with their dogs, whereas I'm fumbling with the uh, with the carabiner to get Anarchy and Hook. Yeah. If you ever get the chance to watch a relay, it's it's a lot of fun. So one thing that I think is really cool, you guys certainly have purpose-bred dogs in your house, but I do really respect that you guys also have rescued dogs. I know that you guys support a lot of your local rescues and really help them raise funds and promote some of their events that they have. Um, and that's really nice to see that a dog that did not come necessarily from a purpose-bred kennel can still be competitive and can still really enjoy the sport, uh, not just recreationally, but also competitively. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you found Oso and what drew you to him and brought, you know, made you bring him into your home? So we found Oso on Heartland Huskies website and what we talked about adopting him for like oh, a four long months. Time. We had adopted from Heartland before. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we saw him and we just were like, is he the right fit? Is he not the right fit? And he was still there and he was still there. And now he's here. <laughs> he reminded us a lot of another one of our rescue dogs that we have, Prudho. And I mean, Prudho is, he's bomb proof. For a dog. I mean, he's nine years old now. We've had him since he was three. He's never missed a day of training because of an injury. I mean, he's never tweaked his paw. He's never, he has never even had the slightest bit of injury. He's versatile. Whenever we run the rig team, yeah, knock on wood for that. Um, when we run the rig team, he goes and lead, he goes and swing, he goes and wheel, he goes left, right, he goes anywhere. He's just an extremely versatile dog. And we saw Oso on Heartland Husky's website, and we were thinking, he looks exactly like Pruto. We ought to check into adopting him. But we weren't really looking for a dog then, and so we're like, no, it's not the right time. And, and this went about for four months before we actually contacted them. And in hindsight, we're so happy that we did because the rescue told us afterward that they had given up on him finding a home. He was just so high energy that when we went to go meet him, we brought a leash. The second he saw the leash, he started screaming. And I guess that was how he acted with every family that came to look at him. And so many families, they walk in with a leash and the dog starts screaming. And they're like, no, thank you. I don't want any part of that. We walk in with a leash and a dog starts screaming and we're like, yes, you belong in our home. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so is a perfect dog for the type of rescue that we look for whenever we look to adopt rescue dogs. Just the type that is so extremely high energy that they have a hard time finding a home where they're not constantly running, constantly working. He needed an outlet and you know we never had issues with Oso because from the time he came home we started him out running. You know started slow and built him up but he had that outlet that he needed. I love that he had that much enthusiasm, but obviously for somebody who isn't running their dogs, that excitement could be a little bit overwhelming. So I could definitely see why he would struggle in a normal pet home. When you got to know Oso a little bit, or maybe even Prudho, are there certain things that you look for in your rescue dogs that you think, yes, this is what will make this dog a great addition to my team and make them successful at dog powered sports? Um. For me, I'd say 
Probably not really. Um, when we go to adopt a rescue dog, really what we're looking for is, we're basically looking for a warning from the rescue that says extremely high energy, no one can control this mm -hmm. dog, stuff like that. You know, even the ones that say, you know, needs an active home, that's not quite a big enough warning sign for us for the dog to dog no, like you know, adopt. We but. have one of our huskies, K2, and he needed an active home. Um, but, you know, he's not overly high energy by our standards. He still likes to get out and run. He likes to play. He wants to be active, but he's not on the level of Oso or Bruto with, you know, the ones that came with warning. <laughs> you know, that's just, that's the difference. Um, and that's okay. Every rescue dog is different. And one thing I would say, too, we talked a little bit about um, with, with rescue dogs is when you get a puppy, when it's purpose bred, you sort of know, you might know what you're getting into a little bit. You can look at the pedigrees and everything. And But with the rescue dogs, we actually haven't adopted any that were puppies. Now, the, the youngest rescue dog we've adopted was, uh, we've adopted two that were around the 11 month old uh, mark. And so basically there's no surprises for how big they're gonna get, you know, whether they're gonna be too small or whatnot or what do they like what do they you know yeah. are they gonna be high energy do they want to participate yeah when someone might go to a rescue and think of adopting a dog for them for their dog powered sports team we also have to look at size um, mm -hmm. I know that when you are running with a dog that might be too big or too powerful, you could waste more energy <laughs> resisting the dogs trying to mm -hmm. slow down if it's not a good fit. Are there, is there a certain rule of thumb that you guys look at for yourselves when you're picking out a dog that you think would be a good match for you? So for us, yes. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll let Joy speak for herself, but for, for me, I, I was a competitive runner in college. Um, I take core training very serious. Um, I, you know, I'm, I run all the time. So I have yet to find a dog that's too big or too powerful for me to handle. Um, knock on wood again, because <laughs> um, I'm, I'm sure there's one out there. But I mean, like Anarchy, race weight, he weighs about 82 pounds and he's well within what I can handle. Well, I guess I would say I'm a good example of what you mentioned about getting a dog that's too big to handle. Um, I am not a very big person. So I am about 5'2", and I weigh about 105 pounds. I'm built very small, um, and I've had some knee injuries and uh, some other injuries in the past, too, that kind of come into play with cane across. And so... Um, I find that Oso is probably about the ideal size for me. Um, he's about 60 pounds. Yeah. Um, and he's, I mean, he's strong and he pulls, but um, I can manage him easily and we make a good team. Someone like a dog like Anarchy is too big for me. And I spend my time trying to either control him, slow him down, um, I don't know, whatever else thing <laughs> there might be. Um, and then we'll, we would actually probably run a slower time because I would use all of my energy just trying to manage him. And it's not that the core strength isn't there or any of that. It's just simply he's just too big for me. And I know a lot of people think I have to get the biggest dog uh, because that's what's going to make me faster. But that's not always the case. 
Yeah, so when it comes to finding like a rescue dog that's the right size for you, um, I would say just be honest with yourself about A, your running capabilities and B, your core strength. A 50 to 60 pound dog will be good for almost anyone. And so um, I guess if anyone looking for a dog, that would be the weight range that I would generally lean toward unless you have reasons to go above or be above or be below that. And I will say too, we have seen so many different breeds and weights and sizes compete in cane across. You know, if there's a breed of dog that you're really interested in, I mean, it can do the sport. Of course, there are certain breeds that may struggle a little more and you want to be careful with, but if you're just looking to participate with your pet, you know, enjoy it and have fun. Well, and in all fairness, a dog's heart matters a heck of a lot more than their size yep. when it comes to competitiveness in the sport. One of the things that is different about rescuing dogs versus getting a dog from a reputable breeder is that you don't always know their history. So a lot of times when a client comes to me with a new rescue dog, we almost have to make up for lost time in the sense that we have to do a, a lot of foundation training that hasn't been done that maybe should have by that age. And sometimes we're even dealing with some behavior concerns because the dog has had more than one home. They're confused about which behaviors they are allowed to do and which they are not. Are there any differences in your fitness training program or your at-home training program that you change whether you are working with one of your rescue dogs or with one of your purpose-bred dogs? So the physical conditioning, no, all the dogs are basically on the same general training plan. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's specialized for their different capabilities, but um, just because they're a rescue or not doesn't really change the physical conditioning aspect of it. Now, what like you mentioned, it does change, you know, the behavioral training. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, you know, you mentioned um, coming with um, pre-existing issues that you might have to correct. You know, we were talking about Pruto earlier. Um, when we got Pruto, he was pretty fearful of women. And um, especially when women would touch his front legs. Or, or his, his head, even. Yeah, and so we did a lot of work with Joy with him. And actually, because of that, Joy and Pruto had built a pretty special bond. Mm -hmm. And um, Pruto was the first dog that Joy raced with at a World Championship event in 2017. And a lot of that was because of overcoming that issue that he came to us with. Yeah, that was really special for me too, because when we got him and I could barely touch his paw or pet him, or he would be so anxious and nervous around me and, and other women too, you know, um, but he really, we worked so hard together. And so it was so really special to be able to get to take him overseas and compete with him. And I think, um, you know, just spending the time with him to help him overcome those things has been, has been key. Yeah, you know, there's something special about raising a dog from puppyhood to an adult and competing with them. There's also something special about taking a dog that has been abandoned, that has been given up on, that has these issues, finding a way to work through those, mm -hmm. and then competing with them also. It's, it's, they're both extremely rewarding. It's just which path you want to take to get there. And I remember at the starting line, I thanked Bruno and I told him, you know, thank you for trusting me enough for us to be able to be here together. 
That must have been super rewarding for you to be able to stand there at the start line with him and to know that you guys had come so far, you know, from the point where he maybe came to you, we'll say, with a little bit of emotional baggage and then to overcome all of that and build such a strong relationship with you and be able to work with you as a team. That's got to be a really special moment. So along with working with our dogs and keeping them mentally and physically fit, we also need to talk about the human side of the team. I know that that's something that you guys put a lot of work into yourselves, making sure that you are fit as an athlete all on your own. And I think that this is something that can be overlooked quite a bit by people who are just getting started in the sport, maybe focusing on the cardio component and actually going out and doing the runs with their dogs, but maybe not doing any of the strength or flexibility work at home that would be needed to keep them in good shape. You've talked a little bit already about working on core strength. Can you talk to us a little bit more in depth about some of the exercises that you do personally in your own routine and what a week might look like for you? So Joy and I actually have different normal training weeks. Um, So I am a little different than a lot of people are in that I pretty much can't train too little. Um, So it's more volume, volume, volume for me. And so I rarely take a day off from running. Um, I train cane across probably four to six days a week, which is extremely high for um, other people that compete at the level we do. Most people will train cane across maybe one or two days a week, if that much at all. Um, But I find that if I don't, I get little nagging injuries that come up. And so basically, I just try to abuse the heck out of myself during the week. I do um, one speed work session, at least one speed work session by myself throughout the week. And then I do my long run by myself throughout the week. On top of that, I cycle quite a bit um, to just add volume. Like I said, for me, it's about how much volume I can put in. Um, you know, we've talked a little bit about core strength already, but I think that's one aspect that's pretty underlooked for a lot of, um, whether it be bike jaw or cane across or even scooter, is that um, you really have to have a strong core to control the dog, whether no matter how you're racing them. Uh, I don't think that's as appreciated by a lot of people as what it should be. Well, my week looks a little different. And part of that is Nick and I are just built very differently. We have different strengths. Um, So I will run about 30 to 35 miles a week um, and probably three to four days of that is with a dog. And that's not um, always with Oso or one of our top pullers. Sometimes that's with one of our older dogs or one of our, as I like to call him, smell the roses dogs because he likes to just go out and enjoy his, you know, sniff along. Um, and sometimes that is with Oso, but it's, uh, you know, I, I like to be able to continue working with the dogs through the week, even if it's not at like top volume, top speed. Um, I, when I'm training, you know, for a race in particular, I will usually do two speed workouts a week. Um, my body responds best to that. Um, I don't always include a long run unless I'm training for something longer. Um, I will spend quite a bit of time on the bike um, and quite a bit of time doing yoga or, you know, 
supplemental strength workouts as well. Now, I know that you guys have a house full of dogs and all the dogs need to get out and get a little work done. How often are you guys going out on a one-on-one -on -one basis versus hooking them up as a larger team? I imagine that that changes based on if you're preparing for an upcoming race, but how much time do they spend working individually versus doing teamwork? So our dogs training is probably about 50-50 between team training and mm -hmm. then one and two dog training. Uh, and then when the dogs do team training, a lot of times, um, so we have some trails near our house and uh, it's almost always using our ATV. So it's very strength focused. Uh, whereas the, the individual training is more command focused mm -hmm. is probably the best way to put it. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's the, the, the biggest difference between the two is strength versus more, more the, um, intellectual side of the training. Are there differences in that training plan based on the time of year or where we are in the season? Are you training any differently dry land versus when the ground is covered in snow? So we live in Missouri, so we really don't get snow a whole lot. Uh, we were lucky this year. We actually got to get our sled out. Yeah. yeah, so when there's snow, we sled no matter what. Yeah, because <laughs> just because we don't have the opportunity to that much. But we also have really hot and humid summers. Yeah, and so in the summers, our training is really focused around just keeping the dogs active mm -hmm. and keeping them from destroying our house because they haven't exercised in two weeks. Mm -hmm. You know, in the fall, it's about building up mileage, getting them in uh, race ready condition. Winter's about, you know, really packing on the miles, getting that high volume training in. And then the spring is a lot of preparing them for the summer heat so that we can continue doing short stuff and then not get overheated in the summer. We find here that our weather, if you have ever lived in um, it might be 30 one day and 75 the next day and that is a struggle for us with training because all of a sudden we may go from winter weather to boom and it, it's hot yeah and so we have to figure out how do we can you know prepare them so they're able to at least do just a little bit when it gets warmer does that generally mean that your training runs are shorter in length or have lower intensity or both so it's it's both to a point. Um, our our northern breed dogs do a good job of regulating themselves in the heat. Um, ironically enough, our short-coated gracers that you would think handle the heat better, um, they only have two speeds, stop and go. And so they actually, what we found, are more at risk of overheating than what the, the huskies and our Malamute are. So um, with with the gracers, it's definitely short distance just because they will not back off on intensity. Whereas um, the, the Huskies and our Malamute, we can get to back off on intensity some. And we do our best to train you know, very early in the morning when it's dark and think, you know, take everything that we can, you know, as cool as it is, that's when we try to go. And in fact, we joke that six months out of the year, our dogs don't run in daylight. Now, one of the things that you mentioned a few times for both of you at a different capacity was training harder and preparing for more than what the race environment would 
um, give to you. Is that also a motto that you generally put into the dog training as well? Are they doing further distances at higher speeds to prepare for that shorter race? Um, it's definitely a motto that we use with the dogs. It doesn't necessarily equate to longer distances at higher speeds. It's more um, longer, similar distances at heavier weight and with less help from us. That way, when we get to a race environment and we're running all out with them, they're like, hey, this is easy. They're not having the brakes on back there. And it also includes things like getting them to trails that have a lot of distractions or getting them around a lot of people on trails and bikes and things that, so when they come across it in a race, you know, it's no big deal. Yeah, that makes sense. Adding a little more resistance behind them to build up that muscle so that it's easier for them on race day. And I love what you said, Joy, about taking the dog out and working in different environments with different distractions. It's so important from a training standpoint that we desensitize our dogs to all of the things that they might see at a race setting, slowly getting them comfortable with it so that they can focus on the job without worrying too much about what's going on around them. Now, you guys work with a variety of athletes at a professional capacity, helping them get in better shape so that they can be stronger. And of course, a lot of your clients are people who enjoy the sport of canicross and bike drawing. For somebody who's just getting started in the sport and is looking to improve their own fitness plan, are there certain areas that you recommend people strategically target? And if so, what are those? So uh, with let's talk about canicross first. Uh, with canicross, what we really work with with someone just starting out is just building that base, getting out there, running. Um, you know, canicross uses a lot of little stabilizer muscles that you don't realize you need for canicross until you actually get out there and do it that you don't necessarily use as much of in, in solo running. And so it's about building, um, you know, strengthen your hips, strengthen your ankles, uh, strengthen your core, stuff like that. Um, we also work on speed work just because, you know, the whether we want to admit it or not, the human is always the weak link in the team. Mm -hmm. So um, if you can improve your speed some, that's just going to make your team faster. And we'll spend quite a bit of time, depending on the, the athlete, on that base building phase, because that's how you prevent injury too. You know, we don't want to take someone up too quickly in mileage or speed and them get hurt and be set back. Yeah, that's a lot of uh, dog-powered sports racing is about avoiding injuries. Mm -hmm. And so the more that you can build that base and avoid those little injuries that pop up that you think are, are nothing when they first come up, but then they just stay and hang on for week after week, month after month, um, the, the better you're going to be. The other thing I think I would recommend to someone who's you know starting this is recovery. It's really key. And I know that... Um, recovery looks different for every person. It looks different for me than it does for Nick, but you know, you are, canicross is hard on your body. And if you're just beating it up over and over and not taking the time to recover, however that looks for you, whether that's foam rolling or massage or Epsom salt baths or ice baths or whatever it may be, um, you know, over time, you are going to beat your body up. So I think that remembering to take that time to recover and take care of yourself is really important. That's 
that's actually a really good point and something that we haven't mentioned yet is for our own personal training we spend probably close to about 50 percent of the time that we spent actually working out we spend that much in addition focused on recovery whether that be icing whether that be um, foam rolling no matter what it is just trying to prevent those injuries from popping up it's something to take seriously too a lot of people kind of you know maybe just push it aside but when you've had a really big injury and you realize the time that it takes to come back from that and all of the injuries that that larger injury has created for you and I am speaking from experience here um then you'll really start to take it seriously and I I you know I hate it when I when I have an athlete and they're like I'll just push through it and I'm like Oh, I just, I wish you would take my advice and, and, but you're going to learn your lesson the hard way. And that's what you really don't want that to be the case for someone, but, but recovery is really important. Yes. Recovery time is so important. That is something that I think is so individualized for every person too. What works for one person might not be the best solution for you, but everybody's body is going to hold on to inflammation differently. So you need to figure out exactly what works for you and your routine. I was smiling as you were talking about your own injury joy, because as you guys know, that's something that I recently experienced pushing myself and ended up with a stress fracture. And it's tough because it certainly stops your training plan and you have to change. There are ways you can try to stay in shape while you're nursing that injury, but there are certain things that, you know, just don't help the same. So it's important for your own body to figure out when you can push through and when you shouldn't, because nobody wants to be sidelined during the middle of the season with a stress fracture. Now, when we talk about recovery time for our dogs, I'm a big supporter of off days for the dogs. And for me, for training, this means no physical training for them, no harness work and no mental training. I do think that dogs really do need that time to just decompress and rest just like we do. For some of our dogs that might not come as easy, we might need to work on teaching them how to relax, work on skills like settle on a mat so that they're able to kind of disengage and, and relax. For your dogs and your home, are there certain things that you look for for those off days for your dogs? So the single biggest thing that we look at with the dogs is their paws. Their paws get checked before and after every run, especially um, the front of their main pad. We check that because what we've noticed with our dogs, we have a lot of um, crushed gravel trails that we train on that are pretty tightly packed and pretty hard surfaces. And um, from training on those a lot, our dogs tend to get uh, blisters that develop right there on the front of that big pad on their front paws. And so that's an area that we focus on a lot. And anytime that we notice anything looks even the slightest bit off, you know, we're putting a paw bomb on them. We're, tr we're trying to treat that. They get time off trying to make sure that, like, like I said for the human side, that that tiny little injury doesn't develop in something that, that plagues them um, for any more than it has to. I think too, you know, know your dog. And, uh, and I go back to Oso in Sweden. If I did not know Oso and know his little quirks and his tendencies, 
Um, you know, would I have asked him to run the second day? Maybe so. But because I knew, you know, this is not like him and he's not feeling well, he's not acting like himself, I was able to make that decision based on his best interest. So I think just really understanding and knowing your dog, because if you listen, your dog will tell you what they need. Yeah, they will tell us what they need. Dogs are awesome communicators. Sometimes us humans are the ones that aren't very good at listening. But I think for novice dog owners, sometimes it can be hard to read those signals and pick up on what's important and when they're signaling stress or discomfort. So figuring out your dog being observant and making sure that you're really watching them to start to learn how they do communicate those things. I know I've mentioned a few times that you guys offer coaching services to help athletes get in better shape and build their teams up. Can you talk to our listeners a little bit about your coaching program and how you might be able to help them? Yes, yeah, so our coaching program is 100% individualized. We do not have a single athlete on our program that has the same workout plan. And uh, we just work with everyone on what their goals are. We have everyone from um, beginners that are just getting into dog powered sports to uh, people that are working to make the next world championship team. Um, we and, have triathletes. Yeah, we, we have people that. Yeah that aren't in dog power sports that are just runners. And so, um, you know, it's really about building a program that works for them. And so we talk with them about what their goals are, what their history is, what they've, how they've competed in the past, how they've trained in their past. And then from there, we, um, we build a plan that helps them meet their goals, taking into account a lot of the stuff we talked about before, avoiding injury, making sure their recovery is right, making sure that we build that base for them and just helping them reach their goals. And I think too, you know, we're flexible. If if we're working toward a goal and something isn't working for one of our athletes, let's reevaluate and we'll figure out how to get them there in the way that works best. Yeah, that, that's one thing that we're really big about is that, you know, we're, this isn't our full-time jobs. You know, we, we have day jobs that we have to do. And so we understand that, you know, sometime your kid has a game on a certain day of the week that you have to go to. So, you know, let's, let's not worry about, oh man, I, I've got this thing going on. So I'm gonna have to go out here and run at 10 o'clock at night and not get to bed until midnight and then be up at, you know, five or six o'clock the next morning. Instead of doing that, let's work around those things and build a plan that actually works for your schedule that you can stick to where you're not gonna get burned out. Right, because that's how you're gonna meet those goals and stop having to start over and over and over every time. Yep. I love it. Burnout can definitely happen. And we want to make sure that everybody's training plan is something that works for them. Because again, every dog and every human are very individual and they need those individualized training plans. Before we head out here, Nick and Joy, do you guys have any last minute tips for somebody that might be just getting started and is ready to up their skills to the next level? So my biggest tip would be just get out there and do it. Um, my biggest regret that I have in this sport is that Ruger, our, our first Malamute that we had, him and I spent years training to get a little bit better before we took that next step to go all in into the racing. And in hindsight, you know, I, I wish that we had just started racing, you know, when he was two, three years old, and instead of waiting until he was five or six years old. So just get out there and do it. Don't don't be scared. I mean, right. everyone at races is nice. You'll find a ton of people that'll help mm-hmm. you and just go for it. And I think that would be the next thing. And I, I know that depending on where you live, 
races can be a large financial commitment and time commitment just to get there. Um, but get to a race. If you think it's something you really want to get into and pursue, even if you're not ready to compete, maybe you're not like physically ready or your dog's not there or something. Uh, if you can get to a race and watch it and, and see how everything works, um, I think that's really key too. And people will answer your questions and they'll help you. Um, we found it to be a very supportive community. Well, thank you so much, Nick and Joy, for joining me for this chat. I really appreciate you guys taking the time out of your day to talk about rescue dogs and training and racing. You guys certainly are very experienced in the field, and I appreciate you taking the time to share some of your knowledge with our listeners. Well, thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. If you would like to connect with Nick and Joy Weiss, you can reach out to them on their website or on their social media platforms at luckyfoxkennel.com forward slash coaching, on Facebook at Lucky Fox Coaching, and on Instagram at Lucky Fox Racing. So, until next time, have fun chasing tails on the trails.